Let's talk to interesting people. Let's talk about the process of seeing things differently. Let's talk about the craft of molding truth and fiction together to arrive at something new and exciting. And let's have fun while doing it. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast, the place where we dive deep into the minds of incredibly talented and creative individuals and try to unravel the mystery behind their inspirations. I'm your host, Patrick Boggs, and joining me on this fantastic journey are the co-hosts of True Fiction, the uncanny Norbert Yates, and the ghost of the machine, Marshall. How's it going tonight, fellas? Rested, fed, and ready to go. Nice. Doing pretty good. Looking forward to the show this evening. Me too. We've got a really great guest tonight. She is a magazine editor by day and an award-winning author of girl power fantasy novels by night. She is also a public speaker, copywriter, and editor. True Fiction welcomes Sandy Lender to this show. How's it going tonight, Sandy? Hey, it's going very good. I'm a little bit exhausted. (laughs) The magazine is going toward a deadline. So yeah, a little bit exhausted, but it's good to be here. Oh, awesome. So what's the name of the magazine? You guys will love this. It's called Asphalt Pro. Asphalt Pro. (laughs) Yeah, it's a construction magazine. Yeah. Oh, very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And I was reading, I was reading about in your uh, all about Sandy, um, about that. That's pretty cool. And you have so many things that you speak on. It's amazing. Now, I did want to ask you about creative writing slash marathon writing survival and tips. That sounds very interesting. Okay, yes. A brief synopsis of that? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, there's a writing marathon coming up here on Labor Day weekend. The International Three-Day Novel Contest is coming up. So the marathon writing that I like to do is like over a long weekend. And it is just that. You start writing and you just type and write like a fiend for three days. So midnight Friday of Labor Day weekend, a whole lot of people who have signed up for this will start typing. And then we type until midnight on Monday. And then what's crazy about it is if that wasn't crazy enough, right? What's crazy about (laughs) it is at the end of that, we turn in the stuff that we've created over those 72 hours to be judged. Like we let people read it and assess us and, and judge us. So That's coming up really soon. But I love doing that. Marathon writing, it is just a great way to get a story just pounded out. If you've got an idea, a kernel of an idea that you just haven't had the time to get to, a marathon like that will force you to get it done. And pow, you get a story done. You get a novel written over a weekend. It's exhilarating. It is, it's something that will... It's a high that you ride for like the next week once you get that novel finished. So I I love it. But it takes a lot of planning and preparation to take 72 hours out of your life and just write and and just type. You've got to plan ahead for what you're going to eat and how you're going to stay hydrated and when you're going to take little power naps. And you've got to plan ahead and have a strategy to to get it done and not end up at the end of that 72 hours. collapsed or in a diabetic coma or something. You got to plan ahead for that. Giving a seminar or a workshop on marathon writing, I know it just seemed like a cool thing to do so I could help other writers to do this and to do it successfully. 
because I love wow. it. I Before we it. go any further, I got to ask a question about this marathon thing. Okay. And I remember there was an episode of Seinfeld where Kramer was going to maximize his time. And he okay. took a nap. What was it? 20, 15 or 20 minutes every four hours. <laughs> I don't and of course, Because he was like how much he was going to get done. I mean, when they plan out, did they think about, he was talking about power naps. Do you do that every couple hours in order to keep going? How do you do that? Because it's, I can't imagine. I do late nights sometimes, but it where I have to sleep for four or five hours and I can do it a couple of days and then I'm worthless for three or four days afterwards. I have a very understanding boss, which is key to all of this, really. my The publisher for the magazine, he he finds it, I think he finds it entertaining that I do this. And like the week after Labor Day weekend, that my coworkers are like, okay, are you okay? They'll ask, are you awake? Are you, are you doing all right? They find it humorous, I think. But I did the power naps a little differently than Kramer did. My, my power <laughs> naps are usually like an hour or two hours. I'll set an alarm before I fall asleep because if I don't set that alarm, I might end up sleeping for six hours, which would be horrendous. That sure. would just throw everything off the rails, right? So yeah, a two-hour power nap, that, but that'll get you back through. Yeah. Is there a minimum word count for that or page count? The International Three-Day Novel Contest that Anvil Press puts on, that's the one that's happening over Labor Day weekend. They recommend that if you're serious about it and you think you're really going to place in this contest, they're expecting you to get close to 50,000 words or so. They're expecting that thing to be 50,000 words. There is another entity called Faybreak Books that does a three-day novella contest, usually in the spring. It was in February over President's Day weekend. And they're in Canada, yet they did it over our President's Day weekend, which is a little <laughs> bit odd, but I'll take it. I'll do it. And that one, they're looking more like 30,000 words. Novella length is what they're looking for. But they say if it's under 30,000, if it's under 25,000 words, boy, that better be a pretty strong story <laughs> to get into the placing. But if you're over 30,000 words, then you know they can work with you on editing and you're probably going to place with that story. I, I placed second place in that contest. Wow. And the story Eden and the Most Precious Stone, it is with them now for publication because it placed in second place. So it's been edited, been played with and kind of beefed up after the contest to edit out some of those crazy spots where apparently I was falling asleep while typing. But we edited out some of those crazy spots and got that thing ready for publication. So any day now I'll get word about when to expect that. That's that's wild. It is, but it's exhilarating. I highly recommend it for writers. If not even if you don't think, oh, gosh, I couldn't write 50,000 words in place in this con this international contest, it's still the experience of it is amazing. It forces you to be creative. It forces you to concentrate and focus and get that thing done. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. A, a couple questions on that. One, I remember ultra marathoners would talk about their experiences of running. Mm -hmm. And this is over a couple day period. And they start would start towards the end different parts, but they would start hallucinating. And I was wondering about like, when you get really tired, do you become more creative or you just, you become a zombie? Cause I was thinking in a way, if you get a little out of your head in some ways, 
you get a little crazy, that may embellish your creative power, so to speak. And the second part of my question is, how much do you, can you pre-plan going into a contest? Because I can imagine somebody just like having tons of stuff that's already ready to go and he's just, they're just writing. How do you police that? It is kind of done on the honor system, the policing of it. And like the folks at Anvil Press, if you go to the Anvil Press website, they've got like this whole section about the three-day novel contest, right? And they say they their judges can kind of tell if you've pre-written stuff, that they can kind of tell that. I don't know how, but they can kind of tell. But they do encourage in the three-day novella contest also, they encourage you to have an outline. That way, if you're typing along, and you guys are all creative, so if you're typing along and all of a sudden the characters are like, nope. I want to do something totally different and you go off on some other tangent, you've still got that outline that you can come back to. You can kind of get yourself back on track. If you're on middle of day two and you realize, okay, I've gotten into the weeds, you can get back on track with that outline. They encourage you to do an outline. I, I think they encourage you to have character sketches and stuff. I feel a little weird going that far because if I'm writing down character sketches, I'm, I'm starting to write and I, I don't feel comfortable starting to write you're supposed to start writing at midnight. I don't, so I don't feel comfortable doing that. But having an outline, I'm cool with having an outline. I'll tape against the wall, like a, a list of character names, character names that fit the mood of what I'm thinking about for the novel that I want to write. So I'll have character names there. So when I'm typing along and all of a sudden I need a name, I just pull one off of that and scratch that off the list and, and put that character in. So that kind of pre-planning is totally encouraged and smart. Yeah. Keep the flow going. So okay. now, like when you get done with this project and so you, let's say you don't place and you have this story, is this something that, I, cause I've never done anything quite like that. I've heard of 48 hour film projects and stuff. And most people that I know that are in that world, when they're down, they don't want to pick it up again. They don't want to mess with it again. But if you have something approaching a complete novel with built on fatigue and caffeine, is that a starting point where you go, okay, I'm going to massage this thing out and you want to come back to it? Do people tend to do that or do that from your kind of talking to people and yourself and how does that work? You need to get away from it for a while and then come back to it later. Just kind of walk through some of those experiences, like coming back to this creative work and trying to do something with it. I think a lot of people do come back to the creative work and do stuff with it. Almost like NaNoWriMo, right? At the end of November, a whole lot of writers out there have this work of 50,000 plus words that hopefully they set aside for a little while and then come back and edit before they go printing it somewhere. And same with the three-day novel contest. The first year that I did it, I wrote a story called Problems on Eldora Prime which is in my Dragons in Space series. And I knocked that thing out and it was amazing. I, I couldn't sleep at the end of this 72 hours because I was so excited about this story that I had finished. And the judges, they wrote little notes back and they were very encouraging. It did not place, but they were very encouraging. So I took that and it took several months before I heard back from those judges. So that story sat and simmered while I worked on other things. So I came to it with fresh eyes, with these encouraging words from these judges, and I was able to 
play with it and massage it, like you say, and rewrite whole swaths of it that had been like fatigue induced, right? And I fixed it up and I did get that thing out the door. I think that was Nightwolf Publishing was the publisher for that one. And on an unfortunate cover, it got out the door and it was fine. The second year that I did the contest, I wrote Problems Above Pangea Moon, which is the second book in the series. So I, I kind of had these characters in my brain and I had the idea in my brain. So I just did the next book in the series the next year. It also did not place. So I was able to go back to it a couple of months later and, and massage it and fix it up and make it into something. And since Nightwolf Publishing was no longer in business, I had a different publisher pick it up and get it out the door for me. Another unfortunate cover. And, you know, it's so yeah, I had different publishers working on these things, different editing styles happening to them. There was no consistency in the end product. So when I was ready to do the third book in the series, I didn't do it over a novel writing weekend. I took some time with it. I was, was painstakingly slow and I brought it into my own house. I did it all myself. And I took those two books that had been with publishers whose doors were closed. I brought everything back in house. I redid the covers. I redid the editing. I redid everything about them and made them consistent. And so now I have the Dragons in Space series looking consistent and feeling consistent, just a little bit better conceived now. Yeah. But I know that other people out there, other authors out there are taking those novels that they're creating over these marathon weekends. And if they don't place, they're still able to use that thing. They're still able to do something with it. Yeah, yeah so. it's still a product out there. That's exactly. awesome. Mm -hmm. You brought up something I was going to ask you about. Those contests, they like your second place, right? They're editing it. You're an editor yourself. How do you feel about somebody else editing it? Oh, I'm so thankful. Oh, I'm so thankful. Yes. I fully believe that you should not edit your own work. Now I say that you should do a review of your own work, edit something before you hand it off to an editor, before you hand it off to an agent, definitely read your own stuff. But I think before you put something out there, if you're self-publishing, oh my goodness, yes, yeah, somebody else who is not you needs to look at your stuff and edit it for you. Definitely. Yeah. And myself included. There are things in anything I've written that I need someone else to look at it and not me because I'm too close to it. I'm going to read right past a mistake that I've made, or I'm going to read right past a gaping plot hole that everyone else will fall into. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely someone else's eyes. Yeah. I used to uh, teach video and sound and it was a, the students would do a video. We had a time constraint and I always like to put a time constraint on it because it's very easy to go way overboard. Even if you're writing something or if you're making some kind of art, it's very easy for you to spend more time than you really should on it. Even as a new creator. A lot of times it would be way over time and I would ask them, they would say, there's nothing I can really take out. I always say, what's your favorite scene? And they would show me that favorite scene and I will get rid of that. And they hated that. <laughs> but usually if they got rid of that scene, they were in love with that scene, but it really didn't push the story along. So I wondered if, do you do anything like that when you're writing? My, kill my darlings. Yeah. Kill yeah. your darlings. Kill, there you kill go. my darlings. 
Yeah, sometimes I'm not disciplined enough to do that. And that's where I need an editor. But there, I think it's Michael Nost was saying, if you are reading something and a line stands out to you, like it's this beautiful line and the wording of it just resonates with you and you stop reading because it's just so beautifully written. It's like poetry. That line needs to go because that line is taking your reader out of the story. Your reader is thinking about how great is this line crafted instead of reading the story and focusing on the action or the characters. And darn, as a writer and as an editor, as a writer, I like that beautiful writing. If there's some line that's poetic, I want to keep that. Sure. But if it's taking the reader out of the story, then it's not serving a good purpose. And that's hard to do. That's where the discipline of an editor comes in. And yeah, we don't like it. (laughs) We don't like it. I was thinking about how you have, like you do editing of of different kinds of stuff. He was talking about the Asphalt magazine. And I was thinking about Michael Crichton. He would write stuff and he would pull some of the most obscure stuff in the world And he would put it in a situation that you went, oh, wow, that's kind of cool in a way that, and I I wondered if from a creative standpoint, do you ever find yourself coming upon little nuggets of stuff that you do, like how businesses are run, how people interact, how people, how science is done in any sort of way that you can use in your stories? Yeah. Yeah. Back when I first got out of college, I went to work as a proofreader for the American Polled Hereford Association. Does anyone know what that is? That is a cow. Oh, yeah. That is a beef cattle, right? Beef cattle. So I worked in a beef cattle association for, I think, six years. I think I was in that organization. But I was in like the creative writing and creative production department. We did a magazine about cows. We did the magazine. And So the livestock industry, I have found, ends up in my fantasy novels. I can still write about cows and (laughs) cattle husbandry in my fantasy novels. I'll find them in there from time to time. Just those little, like you say, those nuggets, they end up in those novels. And I recently, like in the past five years, I wrote a book called Move the Stars, which is a young adult fantasy novel. And I ended up with a whole, like, quarry and crushing operation in this novel that I didn't realize was going to be in there until I'm writing along and I'm like, okay, they need to break these rocks. And I'm like describing a crusher because in the asphalt industry, we crush rocks to make the sub base for the roads. And so I'm like describing this crusher, how these rocks are falling. I'm like, okay, they don't have power. So we're going to have to drop these rocks down this mountain. So yeah, that, that is happening. The Choices Trilogy, which is the one I'm on tour for right now, I'm writing the sequel for it. And in that sequel, I have these two brothers who have come to the Tymon estate and they're pitching how to build a road. And I'm like, oh, for Pete's sake. Yeah, of course they are. And so I know exactly how to build this road. I know exactly how we're going to make this mix design. So it's, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be so precise and so correct. I think my engineering part of me always Ah. loves those little things when I read a story and there's a little nugget about how things actually work. Even if it's in a fantasy, Terry Pratchett used to do that. Oh, yeah. I see from looking up your writer information on your page. And by the way, your page is Sandy Linder, Inc. 
Sandyhasmuchcoolstuff.com. You need get it, need to check it out because Sandy has so much cool stuff on there. But uh, I see where you get the creative writing because I'm looking at your appearances, your speaking appearances, and I see all these and I say, yeah, the asphalt, yeah, and the proofreading, yeah. And then I come to parrot husbandry. Yeah. Now, tell me about that. Okay. The parrots are actually being really good right now. I'm surprised you guys don't hear them right now. They're being very good. I placated them before I came into this room and closed the door. So they're being really quiet. I do have some pet birds in my life. They rule the roost around here. And they, yeah. I actually published a a parrot magazine for about five years before I finally admitted to myself that I cannot sell advertising. I can't do it. And when I do sell advertising, I can't force people to pay their bills. I am bad at that. I'm awful at And I couldn't keep the magazine afloat that way. I can sell subscriptions all day long to the publication. And I can lay out a magazine in my sleep. I could do that part of it. But, oh, I can't sell ads. And it failed. So I had to stop the Parrot magazine. But so Parrot husbandry is something I know how to do. (laughs) Yeah, I've given presentations to Parrot clubs. I wrote a book called How to Train Your Human, A Guide for Parrots. And it's basically how to take care of your pet bird, but it's from the bird's point of view. So I have this amazing son, Conyer, who is all important and all fabulous. And he's explaining to the other birds, here's how to get your human to do everything that you need. And yeah. And that one actually won a Shelf Unbound Indie Notable Award back in 2020. Oh, nice. they, They liked it coming from the bird's point of view. That's very fun. I like the idea of that. Now, have they made it? Because you you write a lot of fantasy. Have have your birds made it into the books? Oh, yeah. Yes, to an extent. There there are some birds that do stuff in the books. But the that Gentle Dragons novel that moved the stars, the, the shoulder dragons in that novel, they're based off of pet parrots. Each shoulder dragon in that novel is basically based off of one of my pet birds. Wow. Their their mannerisms, their quirks, the way they interact with the other characters, the characters they're bonded to. Yeah. They are based off of my parrots. Yeah. That's awesome. When you're thinking about like what you've done and what you want to do in fantasy, I think about fantasy because I'm a visual guy. I do some book covers. And that sort of stuff. And I've been looking at a lot of Frank Frazetta and he has all these kind of different paintings and different worlds that he went to. And then towards the end, he quit and he's focused on photography. And I was just wondering, as you think about, as you're going through what you want, do you have like grand ideas of what you want to tackle next? Do you have I've got a story idea and I want to pursue it. How do you, or a bunch of them, you know, a desk full of, how do you think about the future and what you're wanting yet to accomplish? I have a list of the novels that I want to write in the Choices series, in the Choices world. The world where those stories act out or where they play out is called Unveiled, which is an old English word for power. So the the map that I have, it needs to expand. 
because I have more things happening in that world than fit on the map. But I have a list of the different novels that are upcoming for that world. But then I've got I've got this little treasure box that's underneath my desk. And when I come up with a weird, wacky story idea, I will write it down and I put it in that box. That box is overflowing. It's hard to keep it shut now because there's so many scraps of paper or like the back of an envelope or just whatever is near at hand when I think of, oh my gosh, this would make a great story idea. This would be a good short story. This would be a good novel. And I'll write down whatever's in my brain. If I've got a character name, whatever I've got, stuff it in that box. My plans, I'm not going to live long enough for all the things I want to write and all the things I want to do, but I'll get through as much as I can do whatever I can. I did want to ask you, so you were raised in Southern Illinois. Parts? Yeah. My, my dad was in the Air Force. So oh, okay. I went a little bit of everywhere the first few years of my life. I was born in Homestead on the Air Force Base, okay. which is no longer there. But you know, I lived in Mallorca for, I guess, a year when I was an infant. And I don't know Spanish, but I've got a Spanish accent. If huh. I'm reading Spanish off of a page, it sounds like I know what I'm saying. I can read it like a <laughs> pro. You would think I was a native speaker. No. So my family, I've got a lot of family in Southern Illinois, mostly St. Louis areas. So mostly St. Louis is where I've grown up. I was just going to bring up that uh, Norbert and I, we made a graphic novel and it's basically takes place in uh, Southern Illinois. It's Carbondale, Giant City. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And I was thinking Giant City inspired me when I was a kid and I was, and I'd go to a, a church camp and we would go to Giant City and I just was so enthralled with the enormous rocks and all that. It was just beautiful. I did. Is there been a landscape that has kind of affected any of your books that you've kind of fell in love with and you wanted to add? Oh, I think I'm living there. Florida, I've always wanted to, that the ocean, and I'm on the Gulf Coast side now, the ocean, Florida, just that that feel has always been lovely to me. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Speaking of influences, I'm always kind of, this is a, a recurring theme for me is I think that a lot of your influences, least artistically for me are set, was set early. Like the, the people that I start out loving when I was in my teens, I still love, I built upon that. And I was wondering if there was a pivotal book or author that started you down wanting to write back fantasy. And who are some of your influences going? Do you still have influences that you try to go back to or you read fresh? Or do you try to disassociate from that so that you don't become, you want to be fresh in that and you don't read fantasy stuff? Oh, I read a ton of, I read as much fantasy as I can. I want to stay, I want to stay immersed in it because I, I love it. I know of authors who won't read in the genre they write because of that exact reason. They don't want to pick up something from another author. But I would say my first influence in fantasy was Tolkien. I'm of that age. I'm 53 now. So my dad brought home The Hobbit when I was younger. 
and handed me that paperback and I loved it. So that was my introduction to fantasy. And Tolkien, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. I already wanted to write books when I was young. I always, I would start out by writing the table of contents and even assign page numbers and then try to write things that would fit in those so that's how I started writing books. But then Tolkien appeared. I'm like, oh, this is what I want to write. So I really enjoyed fantasy because of Tolkien. And I will never be able to emulate Tolkien. So I don't have to worry about that. I'm not worried about copying Tolkien because no one can. But I would say Eddings, David Eddings. Also, when I became a teenager, David Eddings was an influence for me. I really enjoyed like the Belgariad, the Malorian. But more recently than Terry Goodkind. Oh my gosh. When Truth came out, oh, The Wizard's First, First Rule, when that one came out, I was hooked. I just, I so enjoyed The Wizard's First Rule. And when you get to the climax in that story and Richard uses the first rule to, to solve the story, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is brilliant. I so enjoyed that. That was wonderful. Yeah. I hope that when I'm writing, I don't do info dumps the way Terry Goodkind did. But other things Terry did in his stories were awesome. His storytelling was great when he wasn't info dumping. Yeah. Yeah. But I do. I still try to read Juliet. I'm going to say her last name wrong. Marillier. She did the Bredet Chronicles. I really enjoyed reading her stuff. When I don't know, I want to keep reading Ursula K. Le Guin. I want to keep reading Mercedes Lackey. I want to keep those things in my brain and in my life. Definitely. So I I enjoy Terry Goodkind. I've read some of his suspense and and I really like it. What now I know you write in several different genres. What other than fantasy do you write? And what do you really like to write other than fantasy? Because I know you love fantasy, but what other genres do you like to write in? Oh my. I've found that I really, I enjoy writing horror, but it, <laughs> I freak myself out and then I have nightmares. <laughs> so I have to be kind of careful when writing horror, when I'm writing horror, I have to do it like in the mornings because <laughs> if I write horror in the evenings, I'm setting myself up for nightmares in the, in, at night, but wow. I do enjoy writing horror. I, I've written like paranormal romance, but it's satirical paranormal romance. It's a satire of the vampire Milou. It's very silly and it's set around holidays. And I've got a vampire who owns a bed and breakfast in Colorado. And so I've got this weird dynamic going on and it's just, it's very silly, but it's humorous. People, they laugh when they're reading it because it's funny and it's supposed to be funny. It's a satire. So I really enjoy doing that. That's fun. But yeah, I guess my dragons in space is kind of a mix of sci-fi and fantasy. And that's very fun to do. That's trying to come up with a way to do a, a fuel mix for engines so that your spaceship can fly for many light years in an instant. That's mind boggling and weird for me, for a fantasy author. Yeah, that's that. But I enjoy it. It's fun. You get to step outside of this world into a totally different one. One's totally made up. And yeah, whether you're writing in sci-fi or fantasy or sometimes in horror, you get to step outside of this world and do something just crazy. I think about the creative 
you have different artistic talents. Like some people are, I divide it into two different groups. They're primarily, there's the off the charts creatives and the off the charts executioners. And there's people that are fall within that broad rubric. They're more this, or maybe a little bit more of the other. First of all, do you analyze what you're doing or do you just do it and it's done and it's out, out the door and you kind of, okay, that was the thing. And this next thing I'm going to do it. And then that, that when it's done, or I'm hypercritical of what I do. And I'm like always trying to figure out what it is that I'm doing well, what it is I'm not doing well, what can I get better at? I'm like on some pieces, maybe this is about as good as I can get on this phase of it in terms of some sort of creative concept, but maybe I can be better execution in either color theory or lighting or whatever structure. I just wondered if you thought about that in terms of what you do writing wise or any other thing you do. I do find myself overthinking some works, some projects, and some projects just like a, during a three-day novel marathon, just rushing it out the door, done, send it off to those judges to be picked apart, judged, and then set it aside. And then I can come back to it and overthink it later. So I think I have a mix of those things. I'm a Gemini. I was born in June. So I think I allow myself to jump between personalities. So sometimes I can be hypercritical and I can do that. I can overthink my project. I can be hypercritical and I can ask several different beta readers, okay, pick this apart and help me fix it. There's got to be many things wrong. Help me fix them. And then other times I can be, okay, I just need two beta readers to look at this and help me fix a few things and let's move through and then get an editor to help me. It, it varies. I think it varies depending on, you know what? I think it varies depending on the project. The Choices Trilogy that's just been re-released. I mean, that thing was released back in 2007, 9, and 15. That's when those three books came out from Archibooks Publishing. But Archibooks Publishing closed its doors in 2019 and all the rights reverted back to me. And my foundational original series was suddenly no longer in print. And I couldn't stand that. This was the Choices series that my main character, Sharice, was no longer out there for the world, right? So I was losing my mind. So I wanted to find a new publisher, which Seventh Star Press was, they were willing to work with me on that. So I went to new beta readers and I rewrote whole swaths of this trilogy. I wanted to rework things. I wanted to make things stronger and better in the trilogy. Like you're saying, I wanted to grow. I wanted to use skills I had learned since 2007 to make pieces better. I wanted to improve. And I think it is better. I do say so myself, but I think it is better. I had extra beta readers help me and they helped me. <laughs> so it is a stronger series now than it was in 2007. Definitely. Yeah. It's nice that you can do that. And it's not nice that the publisher closed, but it's nice yeah, that, that you get your rights back and could yeah. do that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Seven Star Press had Olivia Pro Designs do the covers for the new relaunch. And oh my gosh, it's amazing. She did this awesome job with it. And so I have three new covers that are just killer. They scream epic fantasy. And when you look at this thing now, there's no doubt. This is epic fantasy and awesome. And there's dragons involved and we've got swords and sorcery. It's 
it screams what you're about to read. It's perfect. They're very classy covers. I've seen them and I'm looking at the Mint for the Gods right now. Yeah, Choice of Mint for Gods. Yeah, yeah. it's that dragon is, yeah, it speaks. Yeah, she did an awesome job on that. That third book, and that's one of the cool things about working with an indie publishing house, right? They will actually talk to the author, right? They, They showed me the covers that came in from the designer and said, what do you think? Call. Okay. So I, I looked at him and we talked about the first cover and the dragon on the first cover and made some tweaks. And the second cover, good to go. Third cover, that gorgeous broken crown that's on the third cover, it had a red, a ruby jewel in it. And anyone who's read the series, anyone who knows anything about marketing knows I do everything in purple. Everything's in amethyst. Because Charisse, my main character, is born with an amethyst jewel on her cheek. I'm like, oh my gosh, if we change that to amethyst, this is good to go. And the publisher agrees. Oh, yeah. And so they did. If I was with one of the big five houses, they wouldn't have asked that question. And I would have a ruby on the third book. And everyone who reads the book would be like, why isn't that an amethyst? (laughs) So it's wonderful to be able to work with a publishing house that, that asks your opinion, that will work with you and talk with you about it. Yeah. Very cool. So we were both at the Imaginarium and I just love mm-hmm. that the convention. One thing that, that I was talking to a lot of the small publishers that they were having woes about, and I've talked to this on about this on another podcast, but I just want to bring it up that they were having issues because they were being flooded with AI material. Mm-hmm. And so they don't have the readers that can do that, so they have to. They would have to shut down half a year, or they couldn't keep open and and do that. They would basically just have to kind of shut down. Now, I don't hate AI. I don't like that, but I was wondering, and not in writing your novels, but AI, I think, can be a tool. But how do you feel about AI right now? I don't want to get into trouble here. <laughs> you can be I truthful. Mean, <laughs> as a magazine editor for my day job, I will not accept an AI-generated article. If someone submits an article to me and it looks like it was generated by AI, I know, yeet, it's going in the circular file I, and don't submit to me again. But if someone is using, I think if someone is using AI to... I know to help them in a creative process, I think that you, I'm going to get in trouble for this. I think that you're not being creative. The creativity comes from within. It's inside you. It's being inspired by the stuff around you. If you are truly a creative, then you're seeing inspiration all around you. You're having a dream at night and jotting down the notes the next morning and then using that to create a story or to paint a painting, or to sculpt something. You're using your creativity from within you, not from something that you're generating through a computer or through a a series of bots that have come down through the computer. I think that the creative side of it still has to come from the creative person. Now, if you want to use AI to generate some back cover copy, okay, maybe I can see that. I can see using AI to generate messages that you're going to throw out on Twitter. 
okay, maybe for some marketing language to help you generate some marketing lingo. But oh, I even that takes away from that personable interaction with readers, right? And what are we doing this for if we're not going to have those personal connections? What are we doing this for if we're not using our own creativity and reaching out to one another? What are we doing it for if we're just going to use the AI to do it? It's Sandy's opinion. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I respect that. Yeah. You backing on that, yeah. one of the things that I think of AI is a fast way to, how can I say this? You have a whole lot of influences at your touch that you can use. One of the things that I think about as an artist is I'm a thief. I'm a thief of all kinds of stuff. I see artists doing something cool. I want to lift it as fast as I can. And the reason I don't worry about stealing something and somebody First of all, I have so many influences. I'm not sure that one little technique is going to stand out, but by the time it goes through my filter, it doesn't, it's not that anymore. It's something different. So I didn't, when you was talking about reading other people's fantasy, what are your feelings like in terms of e either techniques or how something is written? How do you feel about? being influenced by other authors what do you have a sort of sense of what you feel like okay this is a red line i'm not going across that or do you really don't care or i know that i am influenced by charlotte bronte if you see my crazy punctuation i know that is influenced by reading charlotte bronte i use way too many m dashes way too many ellipses my editors have to fix that but I am influenced by Charlotte Bronte's style. And in fact, there is a passage in Choice of Men for Gods in the first book. There's a passage in there that I did not lift from Jane Eyre because I, I, that's the red line. I won't cross. I'm not going to lift something and plagiarize. But it is inspired by Jane Eyre. And anyone reading it will go, oh, my gosh, this is from Jane Eyre, isn't it? They'll recognize it. It's because it's I so look up to and admire Charlotte Bronte. I was so moved by the book Jane Eyre. It is such an influence on me that I, it's like I was almost like paying homage to her to include that scene and to write the scene so that it will remind people of, hopefully it will remind people of Jane Eyre. Yeah. But yeah, I think actually just like lifting something, I, that's a line, that's plagiarism, right? And that's a line I wouldn't cross. I wonder, because like with the Jane Eyre, I know you're not trying to write Jane Eyre, but I think what you're trying to do is you're trying to give your readers the feeling that you got when you read Jane Eyre. And to me, that's you're crafting it. This is what you ha it's a craft. You have to know what you're doing to do this. I watch movies and I can say, I know what they were trying and they totally missed. You can see that in movies and in books. That you can see what, and sometimes, and I always think this and exactly what you were saying earlier this evening, I think is so true that you might have this beautiful line that you have to get rid of because it, it takes them out of the, out of everything. So I think, isn't a lot of it trying to stay in the same voice throughout the whole novel or maybe not the same voice, 
but the same kind of approach. Well, the same tone, perhaps. The tone, there you go. Tone. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, getting that tone right and getting that feel, that emotion. Well, actually, if, if you're reading the book, I want you to have a lot of emotions. I want that roller coaster to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I want that roller coaster. But yeah, getting that tone, definitely. Mm, crafting the tone. So we're getting a little short on time, but I want to ask you, I want to read, let's say I want to read, and I do, I want to read a Sandy Lander book. Where's my starting point? And also, what do you think is, this is this book, this is Sandy Lander. If you read this book, you will know what my writing's about. Oh my goodness. I will tell you, choice is meant for gods. Because that is the one, Charisse, my main character, I saw her when I was... I think I was in ninth grade. I think it was either eighth grade or ninth grade. Like I was in chemistry class. I remember this, you guys. I was in chemistry class and I was daydreaming. I wasn't paying attention to chemistry class. And I saw this vision of this woman and she was just lovely, this beautiful lady. And I saw the gem on her cheek and I wanted to know everything about her. I wanted to tell her story. And so she's been in my brain this all this time. My life, right? And so this story is, it's her story. So the whole trilogy is, it's her arc. It's what she had to go through. It's her failures and, and then her wins, but those failures are in there. She's a strong, amazing woman, but she's flawed and she makes mistakes and she has to lean on her mentor. She has to lean on the strong men around her to be the strong character she is. And yeah, that first book, it's my baby. It's the thing that started it all. It's the first book I ever had published. Oh, wow. But it's been redone so that it's better and stronger now that I'm hopefully a better writer than I was in 2007. Yeah. Choices Meant for Gods is the one. That's beautiful, actually. That's a really good description because one of the things that is bugaboo, I think, in today's society is the woman character who's not flawed, who mm. is amazing and everybody else just hasn't figured out how amazing she is and to have a character who's real in the sense that they have flaws they have strength is a very appealing pitch to me because i'm like okay this is a real person as opposed to some of these characters that seem to be in the zeitgeist right now that just don't feel real you know yeah. what i mean there's just they're just kind yeah. of not they're Hopium creations, at least right. in my mind. Yeah, there are. I understand that there are young ladies in our society today who want some amazing figure on a pedestal to look up to. But that's, I think that's almost detrimental to the young ladies in our society today because you're going to make mistakes in life. Once in a while, you're going to fall down and it's going to suck. And when you fall down, you got to get back up again and brush yourself off, and keep on with the mission. In this book, Charisse, she falls down. There's moments when I'm just, I want to cry for her because I'm like, I'm so sorry I did this to you, but here we go. <laughs> Get back up. <laughs> Let's move on. We still got a mission to do here. In the first chapter, she's running away from the enemy. She doesn't look like a hero. She's running away. And yeah, it's... She has a she has an arc to go through, definitely. Yeah. 
It's so cool that you are so close to her. I love that. (laughs) You know, that you've got such a connection with your character. That's amazing. Yeah. I think that someone had asked me who I based her off of. I didn't base her off of anyone. She came to me. But I think, and I've always said that I see elements of my younger sister in her. And I think maybe... I think maybe that's why I can make that connection to her. I mean, there's just little, once in a while, I'll see an element of my sister's personality just dropped into Cherise. But, you know, yeah. Well, that's very cool. So you're on, you said you're doing a tour right now for Choices? Mm-hmm. Yes. So where's it taking you? On the internet. Oh, it's a, on, <laughs> on, a internet Only tour? online. Yeah, no, only perfect. online. Yeah. Yeah, because, well, with that day job, I kind of got to stay where I am. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm going to, like, it's a blog tour mostly. It's on different blogs and websites. And I consider this lovely podcast part of my tour because I get to reach out to the masses and say, hey. Fantastic. Yeah. And we're glad to be a stopping point on that tour. That's, yeah. a, that's amazing. It's wonderful. I've never heard of that. I love the idea. And I'm yeah. going to, I think we need to work to, on that somehow, Norbert. That's, a, that's an amazing thing to have. A blog tour for uh, True Fiction would be awesome. I think that's a great idea. I know Sandy does marketing too, and I think I like that. I'm, I think I probably should have you market us. <laughs> I, you know what? You've got my email address. Let's share some ideas. I'm that all about great. brainstorming this stuff. Yeah. Oh, I tell you what, nice. it's that spirit of Imaginarium, right? We met at Imaginarium and that's that's what we do. We creatives, we get at that that show once a year and we just brainstorm ideas together. Good yeah, to- I, that's no kidding. And Norbert, we spent time on Saturday talking to different people, and it was just amazing. It was just so amazing. The talent that's there and the, just, the creativity is just buzzing in the air. I love that. Now, so we have fans that might want to know about Sandy, so we know to go to sandylenderinc.com. That's Sandy Lender. S-A-N-D-Y-L-E-N-D-E-R-I-N-K dot com. Are you advertising your blog, your blog trip on that? No, it's not posted on the website. I've got a Twitter account. I'm on Twitter and I'm just Sandy Lender because I got on Twitter really early. So I got to use my name. So yeah, just Sandy Lender. Oh, yeah, X. X. (laughs) Twitter. Yeah, X. Yeah, that platform. I'm there. And so each day the blogs are all over my page on Twitter. Yes. Fantastic. Yep. Sandy, I really appreciate you spending some time with us tonight. This has been a lot of fun. And yeah, it's been great. I really enjoy talking about all the creative stuff. It's wonderful. Oh, it's great to talk to a creative like you. Maybe we can do this again sometime. Yeah, I would like that. This has yeah. been wonderful. Yeah. Awesome. You have a great evening and we will talk again. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us on the True Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit us at Facebook. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. Until next time, stay true and stay creative. You're too late. Somewhere